Hi, and welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Friday, September 9th, 2022. I'm your host, Ludovizio. We have a special episode of the podcast this week ahead of our show tonight at 7 o'clock on NMPBS. On the show tonight, we're going to hear from Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. She came into our Albuquerque studios earlier this week to talk to Ourland's Laura Paskus about the pressing environmental issues impacting our state right now. Things like the historic fire season, water planning, and that proposal to store the country's spent nuclear waste here in New Mexico. If you have the chance to watch tonight, I really think it'll be worth your time. Also on the show tonight, we get back into the discussion about homeless encampments in the city of Albuquerque. Wednesday's city council vote, siding with Mayor Keller, gets rid of the moratorium on encampments that council had previously voted for. So it seems like they're back on the table. Recently on the show, we spoke with District 4 City Councilor Brooke Passan about her proposal, which would permanently ban homeless encampments. We heard her concerns, which were largely those of her constituents, but we want to hear all of the perspectives on this issue. So, Jean Grant caught up with two leaders from a New Mexico nonprofit that works on the ground every day to help meet basic needs of unhoused people in Albuquerque. Ash Charzuk is the executive director of the New Mexico Harm Reduction Collaborative, and Steph Charzuk is operations manager. You'll see a small piece of their interview on the show tonight, but we wanted to make sure that everyone had an opportunity to listen to the entire conversation. Here's their full discussion with Gene. You know, it's interesting, Ashley, when I think about this, um, terms are important. When you say harm reduction or tools for harm reduction, what does that mean for the, for the layperson out there? What, 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 what do you use that help folks uh, get, get through, basically? So that's always really good to clarify because harm reduction can seem like this giant umbrella term that is anything that reduces harm. And in a way that's true, but what we mean specifically um, by providing harm reduction services is we provide anything that is going to lessen the amount of harm uh, done to a person through drug use or through, you know, any sort of systemic oppressions. So that means, you know, somebody that's unhoused, for example, um, harm reduction that we do daily with people that are unhoused is, of course, you know, going to relate to um, sterile syringes usually, or it might be safer smoking equipment. But when drug use isn't a primary concern, or that's just not what they're, you know, needing help with that day, we do a lot of socks, food, water. Um, when the buses were not free, it used to be bus passes, but we're so happy to have a pilot program right now. Um, and so just kind of helping them, you know, even just navigation stuff, like sometimes it's something as simple as, uh, you know, my tent got thrown away and I need to find out where to get a new one and what organizations are, you know, giving away tents or uh, I need to find a way to get to the ER, but I won't go in an ambulance, you know, like finding out how to use all the different systems that are in place so that the people that really need help and need those services are not having to sit there racking their brains, you know, not, not knowing how to get a hold of a resource. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, uh, Steph, how you find the acceptance of these tools. I know really this is an individual basis, meaning each unhoused person, you're dealing with their own set of circumstances that either get a yes or a no. I I'm curious at this point, is it a question, you've been at it for two years, do folks know you? Or are they more accepting of you and the things you're offering in, in that light? You know, for the most part, uh, yeah. people want help. Okay. And it, even people who don't necessarily need our services are oftentimes uh, accepting 
our assistance or the tools that we're offering to help other people in their community. Mm -hmm. Like many people who we provide uh, IV needles to will often take them with the intention of giving them to other people if they don't have clean needles or oftentimes we're handing out sharps containers to people in encampments who only want them to clean up the areas that they're staying in i see that's interesting that's interesting human nature is interesting that way no matter where you are some want to help some you know that impulse is very interesting um ashley interesting i'm interested in this as well what is it of what is it that is leading to homeless here in your view i'm not asking you as a policy expert or anything else but just sort of what you've gleaned is there a common thread or two or three things that lead folks to a path that becomes unhoused in albuquerque yeah the the biggest thing um for the people that we talk to every day and the people we know very well is they report just not being able to get ahead enough financially to be able to pay rent um, rent is one of the biggest issues everywhere right now, and it's it's constantly talked about. And right now in Albuquerque, you know, something like a studio apartment could go as high up as like $1,500 in some areas. And even in the areas of town, like the International District, where we're located, some of those studio apartments may go for like $700, $800. And a lot of people are going to be working, you know, minimum wage jobs or they might be, you know, maybe they have a legal background and they can't, you know, they can't get employment easily. Um, or they have a hard time getting back to being employed after losing their ID or their documents. Um, and it's just, there's not a lot out there to help people get all the ducks in a row to fix the problem. Like there's a lot of cracks to fall through, but there are not ladders to come back up out of those cracks. Right. Let me go to a specific situation, of course, that we're dealing with here in Albuquerque, and that was the closing, of course, of Coronado Park. I, I'm curious, Steph, what you've seen sort of in your travels around town. We hear a lot about Wells Park or having a bump. I'm downtown here in, in Albuquerque, of course, and I've got an alley right behind my building. I can anecdotally see the bump uh, since that time. Are, are we being catastrophic here, or is, this, is it just not that big? Is it appreciably not that big of a deal how folks are spilling out of Coronado, or is this something we need to pay some attention to over the next couple of weeks here? Well, you know, I think that that's like, that's a pretty nuanced question. And yeah. it, there's a lot of like issues involved with it, but the park had a lot of things that allowed the community members to feel exa exactly that, a sense of community, a sense of togetherness, right. and a sense of safety. There was a lot of people who would feel comfortable leaving their things there to go do the things like look for a job or try to better their situation. And now these people are getting pushed out and a lot of them are now afraid to leave their things. Mm. And that makes it such a larger stressor, both physically and mentally for them to get around. So I think that like one, we're gonna see a huge amount of migrations. And as long as these parks and areas are continued to be swept in the areas that they are, in the way that they are, people are going to have to keep moving. They're going to have to keep looking for new places. And until we address the problem, besides just trying to move them out of the areas, it's going to just continue pretty much, I think, in the same fashion that we're seeing right now. Yeah. Ashley, the, the, the mayor, again, we're not in a political discussion here, but I must mention the mayor just for a quick sec for some context. He had mentioned earlier in the summer that, you know, 
paraphrasing, Coronado wasn't that bad of a situation. Then a month later, it was the worst, most dangerous place in New Mexico. It was like this wild, <laughs> this wild flip. It seems like we're in this stigmatizing phase uh, once again <laughs> of the unhoused. It just kind of comes and goes. You know, how should we be feeling about this as the public? There's a lot of frustration out there, certainly. I know you guys get this too. Business owners are frustrated. But what do we need to know about what the unhoused situation is here for a look that might beg a little more patience from the rest of us until we can get our arms around this? Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely something that needs to be said is that the way that the park was portrayed uh, in the media, you know, especially recently and, and leading up to the closure is they use words like drug trafficking, for example, or they, you know, they said like murders are happening here. And the reality of the situation is that if you take 150 to 200 people on any given day that have all had society turn their backs on them and they're managing, um, you know, they really have their own culture just to start out with is, you know, they're all just trying to manage the roles that they fit into within that and the roles that they still fit into in regular society. So it, of course, there are things that can happen. A lot of people are going to cope with, um, you know, these things using substances and at the end of the day, the park, you know, we spent, I want to say we spent a year straight every Tuesday night going into the park at night to distribute supplies and to check on people. And it felt more like, you know, coming to a family reunion in some ways because, you know, people know you and, and uh, they would know us and, you know, we'd get like our names called from one area of the park and we head over there, get our names called from the other, head over there. Um, and I, I never personally felt afraid there, but that doesn't mean that it's not, it wasn't, you know, a, a dangerous place in some aspects. Um, I think that the public sees a big park or a big situation like that, big encampments, and they assume that everybody is there by choice. I know that's another thing that um, was sort of quoted um, as being said by <laughs> Mayor Keller about Coronado is that everybody was there by choice. And uh, that's not the case. And so, yes, it, it was it, you know, something that um, people should pay attention to as far as like, you know, safety. There's different like, you know, ways the park could impact safety for people. Like, for example, environmentally, it was not safe. Those porta potties were not being changed out properly or at any regular intervals. So we did see while we were serving the park over the years, we had seen um, a Shigella outbreak where people got extremely sick from the water supply that was there. Uh, we had seen, you know, just other like bacterial viruses, like just di different kinds of illnesses go around. In that aspect, the park was not safe. Um, in the aspect of, you know, is there crime happening there? I think the only crime that I can put my finger on directly is like, you know, petty crime, like the sales of stolen property, um, survival crime, like survival sex is happening, um, you know, but when things like murders took place, it was people usually coming into the park from the outside world and committing, you know, that crime there. Uh, trafficking, for example, like drug trafficking was brought up a lot. Uh, I would never say that that's accurate just because drug trafficking has so many moving parts to it and it indicates that there is a large like system of people that are moving product mm -hmm. and in the case of the park it's always going to be people that are selling in order to use 
And so we never, you know, and then there could be things we weren't privy to. Don't get me wrong. But mm -hmm. I mean, I've never seen like, you know, kilos of, of anything like moved through the park because nobody right. would have money to, to move drugs that big. Thank you. It's kind of logical. You know what I mean? I appreciate that bit of a report you just gave there. I think that would be news to most people. What you just described is that scene at Coronado Park, because we've been told a whole other story, basically. And I just find that very, very interesting. And I want to go back to something, Steph, uh, I'm sorry, my fault again, uh, that Ashley made a, a little bit ago. And that is the trauma of losing like ID and paperwork and birth certificates. Can we just stop here for a second? Just as, you know, homeowners, apartment dwellers, whatever, if that happens to any of us, our lives are a mess for a couple of weeks. Yeah. I couldn't even imagine being unhoused and suddenly having zero ID. It's like you don't even exist anymore. I mean, it's just, you know, the emotional, the emotional stress of that would be, I, it just wouldn't, doesn't take me much to think about it and get my stomach in a knot. That's just, oh my God, I can't even imagine it. Uh, let's talk about something you were quoting in the paper a little bit ago, a couple of days ago, um, Ashley, and that is some of your work working with uh, fentanyl strips. And this is a big deal, of course, in New Mexico right now, it has been for a little bit uh, since we've had some legislation about this. And the Department of Health is giving out a lot of fentanyl strips, and we're hearing numbers of 50,000, somewhere around there. I, you use them, not personally, but you give them out. Is this a good program as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's good in, in a lot of ways, um, but it leaves a lot to be desired. So okay. we love that we finally have access to hand these out because other states have been handing these out for upwards of you know five years now and have already been able to show, you know, kind of like the impact that this has over time. But what this really does for people is it gives them autonomy and it gives them the ability to make a choice uh, when they've purchased, you know, some something to use, like purchased any substance, they now can take that substance and know definitively, is there fentanyl in it or is there not? Uh, and then, you know, make a decision of if they are going to use, you know, are they going to have people there with them or, you know, and they'll, they'll do all the harm reduction measures. Usually um, no one's throwing out their product, which is fine, but you know, they're going to use more safely is, is the choice. Um, but what, what it leaves to be desired is that this is not um, the big move that I think a lot of people thought it was. So with fentanyl test strips, like they're, they're a piece of the puzzle, they're a piece of the story, but they are not going to be the thing that changes the overdose numbers, I believe. And the reason I believe that is just looking at other states that have done this for much longer than we have, and also looking at the current drug supply. Um, so right now, one thing that we're seeing with the fentanyl test strips is that a lot of people are like, oh, well, I mean, every bag I buy is positive. Like there's, no, I can't get away from it. Like there's nothing I can do. And go ahead and explain what you mean there for folks who are not around the drug world, so to speak, what, what, can sometimes be included with some of these drugs you're, you're mentioning? Yeah, definitely. Um, so most of the time when we have someone testing drugs, they're going to be testing um, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, anything that comes in a powder form. Mm -hmm. um, drugs you cannot test are cannabis, but there is never a risk of fentanyl being in cannabis as that's just not possible for a whole myriad of reasons. Um, press tablets too. Yeah. Pressed pills. We see, of course, that's the big one. Everyone talks about is like the little blue pills that are on the street. 
So when somebody is testing those drugs, they're using that test strip to just get a yes or a no. And if it is a yes, that, then that means what we're usually seeing is some uh, variant of fentanyl, some analog of fentanyl. Uh, what, what we're seeing here in the supply is this is not fentanyl like when you go to the hospital and you're given fentanyl during surgery. Um, this is something that has a much longer half-life. And the um, isomer changes that have gone into, you know, meaning the chemical changes that have gone into making these analogs are going to mean that they may be more potent than to, you know, what was expected, um, or they may just, you know, like I said, last longer. So you never really know what it's going to be or what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. That's, that's frightening. That's frightening from the user end of the world. That would be frightening. Steph, interestingly, uh, the collaborative in the paper was quoted that uh, you were losing, you guys were losing, or we were losing in Albuquerque, up to 10 clients to a fentanyl overdose every month back in the spring, but those numbers have dropped. Clearly, something's working a little bit here. Is, 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 given even what, what Ashley just mentioned, or Steph, are, 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 is it the, are we on the right track here with these fentanyl strips? I think that we're putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. Okay. In a lot of in a lot of aspects, we're definitely doing something that is having a positive effect, and a lot of the people, once again, that we're we're giving these to are people who don't intend on using, but want to make sure that the people around them have the opportunity to test it. Um, but there are a lot of people also who don't. There are a lot of people who don't. That's not their primary concern uh, at this point. They've kind of gotten to a point where they're more concerned about the end results than they are about the process of getting there. So we can't address that with a test strip. If they don't want it and it's not of interest to them, it's not going to solve their problem. Um, I, th I think that, you know, a lot, a lot of it has to do with the way that we as a society are viewing the people who are getting on these, uh, these substances and the fact that we are, putting them in a position where they feel like keeping their use a secret or, uh, you know, not informing people of possibly the level of their use has really driven so much of these problems to where people can go into a bathroom and overdose and no one of their family is going to know of, you know, having Narcan on the premises, or even if they did know where, where it was possibly how to use it. Right. So, uh, yeah. I, I, description. Yeah. That, that kind of paints an interesting picture there. You're right. There's a lot of hidden <coughs> drug use out there with very serious drugs that have, you know, enormous impacts on families. Uh, interestingly, talk about impact, the impact on needle use here, now that we have this going right now, um, Ashley, you know, are they dropping? Are they, you know, what's you've been in the, the the exchange needle program for a while too with your collaborative. What's what's happening with needles around town? Um, well, we're distributing so much less than than what we would have been, you know, say like two years ago. And and uh, before we were in business, I've been doing this type of work for many years, and I can honestly say, like five years ago, uh, we would have, you know, distributed probably like double, triple, maybe quadruple what we do now in syringes. And that's mainly just because um, with syringes, 
you know, we, those types of um, substances, for example, have become less popular and they're a little bit harder to get. They may be a little bit more expensive. Whereas the pressed fentanyl pills are, you know, formulated to be smoked off a of foil, uh, meaning that they're a, they're a low heat, you know, um, like low heat use. So they're very easy to smoke. They're very easy to get a hold of. They're mass produced. Um, we've seen some, you know, people that have pill presses in their cars, like where they can literally make product on the go, or they have handheld pill presses where they can do one pill at a time. And uh, it's, you know, it's something that's become so accessible that when House Bill 52 passed, um, not only did it allow us to start, you know, distributing fentanyl test strips, but it also allowed us to look at options like foil and pipes and things like that. Um, so when the regulations came down the line from the Department of Health, we now can give away foil. So we can actually, you know, even though foil, you can buy it at a grocery store, what you purchase at a grocery store is not going to be the same as what we can distribute, you know, as a harm reduction organization. Ours is, you know, going to be uncoated, um, no like cooking oils on it or anything like that. It's going to be, you know, stripped down. So it's just aluminum foil mm -hmm. and that's going to provide a much safer experience for people that are using it. Um, and I am totally okay with us, you know, uh, exchanging less syringes as long as, you know, we have an option for people that are, you know, using in whatever uh, route they feel best doing. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Steph, do you want to add anything to that? It looks like, you know, you, had, you might have had a thought there. We're just um, no, uh, honestly, like that, that's pretty much fact, like straight to the point. Like, I, I don't think that we're ever going to stop distributing, uh, syringes, right. but I, the, the upkeep and people who are needing smoking utensils or these safer smoking kits has definitely shot up. And I think that just with the trends of use that we're following, like Ashley said, uh, that's, that's pretty much what should be expected. And, and yeah, it's it's as long as we're getting the people what they need, then that's all that really matters. Good point there, actually. And I'm glad you got that in. Ashley, are, are, for both of you, but starting with Ashley, are safe outdoor spaces the answer here from your view? It's hard to say if they are. So um, one thing that I've kind of personally looked into is, you know, looking at case studies from other places that have done this, whether that's here in the United States or in Canada or elsewhere. And it doesn't seem to be a perfect solution, but it's a solution nonetheless. And I believe that if we were able to, you know, allow safe outdoor spaces here in Albuquerque, what we would start to see is that people who are unhoused want to have some sense of order. Um, and when the moratorium, you know, came in and, and the news came down the line and we started telling our participants like, hey, you know, they're stopping the applications like they won't accept any more applications for safe outdoor spaces. People kept giving us the same answer of, but we were ready to do it. We would have helped. We would have cleaned. We would have, you know, we would have taken care of things. And like they really had this drive to be like, if this is the only thing that we can have that's accessible right now, like we would have made it the best that we could. And so it was really sad to see people let down. Um, and also to be told, like, you know, when they keep getting moved out of the park, so, you know, like Phil Chacon, which we were at the other day um, with the journal, 
you know, a lot of people are being told by the city, uh, nope, you got to go elsewhere, but there's no elsewhere. And so it's like, you never, you never really know where you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Steph, you've had a, ch- a chance to talk with some of the faith-based entities out there that have some want to on this issue, or are, are you guys in, uh, maybe not collaboration, but are you in touch and talking about goals and things? Um, we've been in a little bit of communication with faith-based yeah. organizations, but a lot of them do, don't really apply the same harm reduction mindset that we do, and a lot of them don't really want to be involved with like the distribution of syringes that we're doing or uh, like, like assisting in that aspect. They'd much prefer, you know, uh, getting people on the roads to whatever, you know, treatments that they, uh, that they kind of like follow by. So there's not been a whole lot of collaboration in that respect between our org. Yeah. A lot of people, or at least a lot of the organizations that, we've been in touch with just through like coordinated outreach meetings and things like that. When approached with the, you know, option of possibly, you know, applying and sponsoring a safe outdoor space, a lot of the complaints that we hear, a lot of the reasons not to that we hear are, well, we don't want to be responsible when someone overdoses. We don't want to have to um, stock Narcan on the, on the grounds, you know, like we don't think that that's a good option for us or, um, even something as simple as, well, we don't we don't want to be responsible for a syringe drop box or like we don't want to have to have to be responsible for the hand washing stations and the porta potties and and what if someone gets in a fight? And so there are so many different elements that goes go into safe outdoor spaces. Um, but for the people who are for the organizations really who have wanted to do that and who have been turning in applications, like I mean. It's, it's a really big job. And I know that um, the Compassion, I believe it's called the Compassion Center. They have not a safe outdoor space, but they have something kind of similar where it's been people like uh, being able to stay there and, you know, kind of like live in not, well, for the most part, really live in the space and take care of it. And I know that um, when we've talked to the director of that site, she has always said that it's been a really, really good experience. Mm, interesting. Um, you know, politically, it's difficult. City Council has been back and forth on this, of course. You know, everyone's got to represent their own districts and they're hearing from their own constituents. And that's our system. And it's nothing wrong with that, I suppose. But I got to wonder, Steph, if just, if just one, you know, safe space opens and a point can be proven that it might flip the community's idea of what possibilities can happen in a safe space. Do you know what I mean? Is that a possibility? Just getting one going and have it just work somewhat better than Coronado did, I think would flip a lot of people here, but I'm I'm not on the street like you guys are. So I'm interested in your opinion. I think that a lot of people tend to forget that for you to want to care about a community, you have to feel like your community cares about you. Yeah. And having a space to take care of, having a place to call your own is so integral to everyone's experience of safety and feeling a part of society, community, and the people around you. I think that if people stopped and thought about that, that yeah, absolutely. Giving these people, giving our community members places to feel like it is their own and it's their first step towards 
rejoining the rest of you know society. I, I think that it would not only do psychological wonders for a lot of this, but it would also just yeah, I think we'd see a lot of drop in crime. I think that the areas would be much better kept than they probably are being now. I, you know, I think that there are a lot of areas that we would see. Has that been the Las Cruces experience? And, and have you heard from those folks? Are they are they getting a good result from the situation they started down there? Um, I've only talked to. I think about two people that do outreach out in Las Cruces and mostly what we've heard from them is just been that, yeah, it works out pretty well and that there's not a whole lot of complaints. The main complaints that, or the main people complaining rather are going to be anybody that, you know, owns property near a safe outdoor space. But a lot of the complaints that are coming in from what I understand are not like material complaints of like, oh, this happened and and we're mad about it. It's more like we're worried this could happen type of things. Mm -hmm. Um, But outside of that, I mean, I don't know a whole lot of of what it looks like down there. I haven't been down there, but Mm -hmm. I mean, from what we hear, it seems to go okay. I'm hearing the same. I haven't seen it myself. I'm, I'm curious myself. Is, is there an example out there globally that you guys look to that's working well when it comes to a, a safe outdoor space for unhoused? I mean, the, the hard thing is, is that, um, you know, I would say, honestly, like Canada has some really, really good areas to that you can look at, you know, for example, like uh, British Columbia allows safe outdoor spaces. Um, but they also allow safe consumption sites too. So it's, you know, it kind of seems like where these places are allowed in most of them, there's been other measures that have come before the, the safe outdoor spaces or at the same time where they've also increased public health efforts, they've increased access to things like methadone or suboxone. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say if it's like, is it working so much better because it exists or are these spaces working so much better in these communities because these communities put real evidence-based things in, in motion to help people? You make a key point there that, and then Steph, I'm sure you, you know, you'd agree, it's not just one thing. It has to be part of a constellation of services to make the whole thing. And if anyone is missing, the rest function at about 50% or less. <laughs> so trying to, trying to get all these things stitched together is a, is a huge difficulty, I can imagine. Um, I'll have to look up that, that BC stuff. I'm interested in seeing what they're doing up there, but I, I, I hear you, Ashley. It has, you know, the other things that go with it or, or in, in, in big part of its success or not. Um, I got a, I got a question about porta potties. I get this a lot. I'm sure you guys do too. I'm downtown here. You know, it's been growing forever. Why can't the city just put a couple of porta potties downtown? The world is not going to blow up and <laughs> into a million pieces, but it would serve the business owners down here so well. And I think it's sort of endemic to the disconnect we have sometimes between elected people and where you guys are coming from to see stuff going down in the street every day. How important is the porta potty for, for an unhoused person to have access to just simply having a bathroom out there? Oh, it's huge. I mean, like literally having a bathroom, even if it is just a porta potty, that can be the difference between, you know, like legal problems, for example, because we do get a lot of our participants that, you know, come to us like, oh, I got ticketed for public urination, but there's nowhere to go to the bathroom because of COVID. 
Um, and also it can even mean like, you know, safety for somebody that like we've had participants, for example, where, you know, they're, they're running to try to get away from somebody. Like we had a, a female participant of ours, um, where she was trying to run, um, down on Lomas to get away from a guy that had, he was trying to, um, assault her. And this was near Old Town where they have the 24 hour bathrooms in Old Town that are open to the public and ducking into that was a life saving move. Um, but just even on a practical level, you know, like a lot of people, you know, don't want to be, you know, using, you know, the, the sidewalk as a restroom or anything like that. But because Albuquerque has gone so hard on this whole, like, no public bathrooms, no public bathrooms, it becomes such an issue because we were content doing that, I guess, as a, as a move, but we're not content with the results when we realize that unhoused people also have to use the restroom somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, I was always very confused personally as a human um, as to how we could watch things like the Shigella outbreak um, that has now happened twice at Coronado when Coronado was up and running, um, where we're, you know, watching people pass away even or, or, you know, go through like this horrible illness because the water became contaminated, yet the city refuses to be responsible to just put even one working porta potty or switch out the porta potties that are already there. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember reading years ago in the New York Times, um, I believe it was San Diego, I could be wrong here, there was a program where they decided, the health officials there figured out that you use the bank of porta potties as a central location, and but you have a lot of services around those porta potties, meaning people literally talking to people saying, what do you need? What's going on in your life? Because that's the place where people can open up a little bit and be a little bit more, more honest, they were finding. Uh, that once a service like that was extended, people felt a little freer to talk, well, maybe I need this, I need that. I, I, again, I have to say it again, my personal frustration, we are not the size of San Francisco. We're talking 15 to 1,500 to 2,000 people. I don't get the harm of setting up a bank of, of porta-potties downtown or anywhere else and having services and people who are professionals in this business around them to simply talk to people, to get them pointed in the right direction somewhere. I don't know how we get that done politically. I know you guys have tried to, but it's just, it's just, it's hard. Um, let's finish up here. Ashley, what do people need to know? What, what, what do our attitudes need to change here as citizens of Albuquerque? Again, there's so much anger out there, but that's not going to solve anything. You know, what, what do we need to do as, as to help people like you out there? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that that I would say that we need to do is we need to stop seeing this as a moral failing. Um, something like, you know, any kind of being unhoused, for example, money issues, drug use, anything that falls in those realms. A lot of times people will look at it and they'll say, well, it's a choice. You right. chose to not pay your bills. You chose to put drugs in your body. Um, but one thing that these people are not considering is that not everybody that doesn't pay a bill becomes homeless. Not everybody that does a drug becomes, you know, a substance use disorder diagnosis. So we really want people to start looking at this as not so much of, um, is this right or is it wrong? But it doesn't matter if it's right or it's wrong. It's happening. It's happening right now. These are still people. They still have needs. And when you take care of your community, 
You know, when you when you really care about the people that live in your neighborhood, and I don't just mean the people that own homes in your neighborhood. I mean, you know, the person that, you know, sleeps in, in the alleyway or the person that might be eating out of your dumpster at your apartment complex. Mm-hmm. You know, if you care for all of those people, you will always have a healthier outcome and a better community of better safety of less crime. And so when we want to sit here and we keep blaming all these things in Albuquerque for crime, like I always hear people being like, Oh, it's the Keller administration or it's, it's homelessness or like it's drugs. It's, it's fentanyl. And at the end of the day, all the people that are saying, you know, it's this enemy, it's that enemy. We need to look in the mirror. It's us. We're the enemy. If we are consumers and we are not willing to take care of people that have less capacity than we do to consume, then we we are inherently the problem. That's right. Very well said. Steph, I'd love to give you a chance at, at that as well. If you have any thoughts. I mean, I think Ashley said it pretty well. Uh, a lot of a lot of the issues that I think that most of the people associate locally and probably internationally with homelessness are not issues that come from people being unhoused. They are issues that come from the same economic and social failings that led to the people becoming unhoused. The crimes are being committed for the exact same reason that people are losing their apartments, losing their homes, losing their jobs, not being able to get uh mental health assistance that is so grievously needed by so many people who aren't unhoused but you know so often it can take one little slip up on a societal chain for these people to just end up completely forgotten and i I think that the only way we're going to address that is by addressing the larger bubble that's causing all of these issues. I really, yes, I, I thank you for getting that in. I really much appreciate that. You know, I have to say, guys, you know, to humanize each individual story, it's important. We have to understand these are people who have backgrounds. No one wants to be this. I mean, no one wakes up one day at 18 years old and say, you know, I think I want to street, sleep on the streets for the next 20 years. No, no one does that. And one of the things that really distresses me is the amount of times you see in a news story that someone had been in a car accident and strictly just gone on pain pills and and eventually led to them being homeless. If you can't find compassion in your heart, you know, if you want to blame somebody for being on the street because they've been in a car accident and had a grievous head injury or a back injury or something where, you know, terrible pain was a part of their life. I don't know what to tell you. That that just doesn't seem to me a good way to look down on somebody because that could happen to anyone driving on the streets of Albuquerque, getting broadsided out here. So we need to keep in mind that these are individual folks who have their own stories and some of them a lot more innocent that you might think and not as not as crime-ridden as we all like to, not we all, but some people like to think it is. Ashley and uh, Steph Charzik, thank you very much from New Mexico Harm Reduction Collaborative. I can't thank you enough for this conversation and perhaps I wanna put it out there, we can catch up with you folks at some point down the road. Obviously this story is gonna have some twists and turns would love to have you back, especially if we're making some progress. <laughs> that would be the ultimate way to have you back on. Uh, but even if we're not making progress, we'll have you back on. We'd love to have you back on as well. So thank you to you both. We thank really you. Thank, you. thank you. Absolutely. Folks, we'll be on tonight with a great show. We've got Senator Didi Feldman. Uh, let's see, who else? Oh, I shouldn't have gone there with Didi. My head's all full of things. We've got a wonderful group of guests tonight at 7 o'clock on Channel 5.1. Uh, So great topics as well. So we'll see you then. Until then, until then, take care and enjoy the weekend. Thanks again, guys. Really appreciate your time.
Thank you, Gene. And thank you, Ash and Steph. You're both doing admirable work. Again, don't miss our show tonight at 7 o'clock on NMPBS and that exclusive interview with the governor. And as always, thank you for listening to the podcast. It really does mean a lot to us here at New Mexico in Focus. Thanks again, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Friday, September 9th, 2022. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great weekend, everyone.